Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 74. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Colin Lloyd. Colin has been following the ebb and flow of financial markets for more than 30 years. He writes a bi-monthly newsletter available at inthelongrun.co.uk, which provides longer-term macroeconomic commentary and guidance for financial market investors. Just want to say a very big thank you to Graham Jones for your voice message about the Brexit cast after the rugby. It was very much appreciated, and I play that at the end of the show. Thank you so much. Welcome to the show, Colin. Well, it was great to be here. Thank you guys very much for the invitation. Our pleasure. So, Colin, you've been in the, in the markets for, for quite a while in various roles. Um, do you want to just talk us through the, the backstory? How, how did you get to where you are? Uh, absolutely. So, I started in the commodity business uh, back in 1981. Uh, actually, a family business involved in the timber industry. We used to charter ships from uh, one part of the world to another part of the world. I got involved in bunkerage, insurance, uh, lots and lots of forward contracts. Uh, uh, not a very efficient market. Uh, one of the things that interests me today is the possibilities of smart contracts because there's a huge element of trust in most of trade. Anyway, uh, frustrated by the difficulties of forward contracts and the physical commodity business, I did a complete about turn in 1987, joined a uh, derivatives broker called GNI, which uh, was involved in financial futures. Um, I got involved in money market instruments and then in bond instruments, then in uh, cash fixed income and uh, arbitrage type strategies um, and uh, found myself uh, uh, starting to learn the uh, the, the background to macroeconomics because I had a number of macro hedge fund clients. Um, so I, I did that until 1999 and then moved completely in about face again into the equity business and uh, run an e- ran an equity finance operation, uh, which we uh, grew quite substantially. So that gave me a, a very different perspective on, uh, on the world. Uh, and uh, that carried on until 2006 when I left the sell side and moved to the buy side working for a, a multi-strategy hedge fund. Uh, talking with investors and helping on the sort of business development side. Uh, from there, I went on to do some consulting work with a range of different uh, hedge funds, uh, normally on the startup side of things, uh, and came back uh, strongly to the macroeconomic side when I set up a foreign exchange business back in around uh, 2011. Uh, it it was something that I hadn't been involved with uh, for, for a few years and uh, realized that I'd, uh, I, I'd been missing something in my life, if you like. <laughs> um, and from there, uh, it grew into a commentary for some of the hedge fund clients I'd had over many years. Uh, and then when we sold the business uh, around 2013-14, I started uh, a macroeconomic newsletter because I didn't want to stop thinking about, talking about and commenting on macroeconomics. Uh, so that, that's that's the, the long story, really. Well, you mentioned the, um, the, the newsletter. Is, is that free or is that a subscription um, 
piece. It's uh, it's a free newsletter. Uh, if I can make a plug here, it's uh, in the long run, and the uh, uh, the URL is in the long run And is that available to private clients, or do you need to be a, a sort of FCA type person to uh, to receive it? No, it's uh, it's free and available to everybody. What what I did was I uh, before I started the newsletter, I had this idea that information was becoming more and more ubiquitous and the difficulty back in the old days was trying to find the right information in the first place. Uh, Today, the challenge is trying to find out which is the right information with the plethora of sources that you have. So in the long run is an attempt to collate uh, information from various sources uh, that is freely available and present that in terms of uh, kind of a thematic view about markets, uh, uh, usually it's about a market that's moved uh, and why it might have done so, or a market that hasn't moved and why it should have done so. Uh, so it's very much that nexus between macroeconomics and financial markets. You started your career in the early 80s in commodities. So I was just thinking back to the Bunker Hunt cornering the silver market, wasn't that in, in around 1980s? You must have witnessed that firsthand. Uh, I wasn't involved in the silver market, but uh, the cornering of commodity markets has been a, a tried and tested way of either making or losing a fortune <laughs> going back a very, very long time. My, my grandfather, funnily enough, uh, whilst when he set up the, uh, the, the the timber business that I started in, uh, got involved in the Brazil nut market in the 1930s. and. Uh, uh, very nearly made a fortune by trying to corner the Brazil nut market, uh, unsuccessfully, I hasten to add. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it, it was an interesting one, the Bunker Hunt uh, uh, exploit. Uh, uh, there's still rumours that whilst he was buying in the uh, in the COMEX market, he was laying it off through uh, you know, spot and forward physical contracts in Switzerland. So I'm not sure we'll ever get to the bottom of exactly what was going on. Uh, but it was a it was a wake up call uh, for how a small change in supply or demand can have a very dramatic effect on a, uh, a very competitively priced commodity such as silver. Is it possible to do that these days? There's always that difficulty. Um, funnily enough, what I do quite a lot of now is helping a company that's involved in uh, litigation support for, uh, for, for for people in financial fraud cases. And quite often those are about uh, collusion and market manipulation. And when a... When any commodity or security becomes incredibly competitively priced, uh, the people who are making markets, uh, providing liquidity, uh, have to make their money out of something other than just the bid offer spread. Uh, and so the uh, the temptation to move the market because that's the only way you can make a living uh, is very, very strong. And it's a, it's a difficult one for the regulators to try and balance. Um, the other thing is, uh, you, if you have a large position in the market, uh, how do you move your position around? This, this has been an age-old problem for, uh, for hedge funds for many, many years. They try to deal with the edge and they make their money out of what might be considered arbitrage opportunities. But when they get too big, 
they cease to be uh, making their money out of the market and become the market. Uh, at that point, uh, you know, a small move uh, in, in, in their overall position can have a very dramatic effect. And is that, you know, is that collusive, manipulative behavior or is that just trying to get the job done? Mm. Um, it, it's uh, it, it, I don't know that there's a, a a right or moral answer to that question. Actually, is that why dark pools formed? Um, dark pools are a more uh, dark pools are a more difficult uh, thing to quantify. Uh, you have that difficulty that uh, you want to get a large order done. You don't want to show your hand to the market. How do you go about it? There's uh, a variety of different ways of, uh, of of approaching it. If you've got multiple uh, marketplaces where you can trade, you, uh, you know, for example, crude oil, you might trade the uh, the, the spot, uh, the uh, WTI as well as the Brent crude contract, you might trade four different futures contracts in order to spread it over uh, over that uh, range of, uh, of different arenas. But you still have the problem that you know, compared to the underlying physical market in oil, for example, uh, it, it's tiny. So for the very large oil companies, you, hedging is, well, it's very difficult and Frankly, what they do in the market moves the futures markets rather than the other way around. So, uh, so dark pools become a, a, a solution where a buy side client hopes to be able to match their large order flow with uh, another buy side client who wants to uh, transact in the opposite direction. Um, of course, the moment you lose transparency, which is what a dark pool uh, <laughs> implies, uh, you are leaving yourself open to maybe not get the best price. And that, that, that opens in itself a large can of worms. Would you say that we have, um, let's say, fully functioning markets in, in the light of innovations like QE and, um, well, firstly, ZERP and then NERP, negative interest rates? Or, 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 in other words, would you say the market dynamic has changed over recent years? Uh, the market dynamic is always changing, but I think what we've seen since 2008 is, uh, is the markets becoming increasingly more fragile. Uh, mm. Uh, there was always that adage that you could always find liquidity in a market except when you really needed it. And <laughs> that has never been, that's never been more true than today. I, I, I was writing recently, uh, and, and I've got another uh, article coming up shortly about uh, the implications of uh, what happened in the US money markets that uh, uh, overnight funding that uh, suddenly became very difficult uh, over a tax, uh, a quarterly tax deadline back in September. When the most liquid markets in the world, the uh, overnight money markets in the largest currency in the world, the US dollar, uh, can move by five, six, seven hundred basis points in a single day, uh, it's cause to be concerned about the, uh, the fragility of the market. Um, added to which, all the scandals surrounding LIBOR mean LIBOR is going to be replaced by the overnight funding rate. And that begs the question, well, how do you make the markets more stable and less volatile? And 
the solution, I suspect, is going to be allow the Federal Reserve to have an even larger balance sheet. Uh, and I, I still haven't quite done the calculation of how large I think it might need to be in order to maintain stability in the overnight funding markets. Uh, but that is in itself uh, a function of the fact that you know, if you trade Japanese government bonds, you'll find that there's hardly any to trade because why would why would, bank, why would you want to do that first of all? Well, why would you want to? Because the price moves, not because yeah. there's any real yield. Uh, but even if you wanted to, you have the difficulty of the fact that whilst there may be a large amount in issuance. The vast majority is locked up in the uh, vaults of the Bank of Japan, so to speak. And so there isn't actually any free float. It's a little bit like when you buy a stock which has a large market capitalization, but 90% of the stock is owned by a single founding Sorry. family or yeah. shareholder. There's, the, the, there's no free float to trade. In the, in the, on the topic of Japan, I mean, the Japanese market, I think, is fascinating, not least because of the... I suppose the relationship, if there is one, between so the bond market, which just just looks hideous, and the stock market, which we, which we we're, we're huge fans of, uh, how long can this kind of because um, the, the the Japanese were the first into this kind of deflationary mess and you know, extreme experimentation with monetary policy. How long can how long can that gig last? Do you think? Oh. I mean, is, that, is, that an impon is that an impossible question? Because the, what, one thing that probably all, everybody on this call, so Paul, yourself and myself will be familiar with, is that the sort of trying to short you know, JGBs, Japanese government bonds during the 90s, became you know, the most notorious widow-maker trade of all because it never, <laughs> ever worked. Yeah, I, I do remember on one occasion a colleague of mine who always shorted the JGB uh, <clears throat> finally making some money. And uh, uh, on the same day, he had a horse win at Cheltenham and went <laughs> rushing across the road to collect his winnings, trod on a stone and broke his foot. He was that kind of a guy. Uh, uh, yeah. I, how long will it go on? I, I have a rather... Uh, rather worried view of things that uh, the Bank of Japan is, I see the, the sort of the Petri dish for any uh, central bank experiment. And they already have embraced QQE where they're now buying, well, I can't remember what percentage of ETFs. I think the last time I looked, they had 55% of all ETFs uh, on sort of uh, the broad buying, they're Japanese. They're buying baseball cards now, aren't they? <laughs> I, oh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised. But if you think about it going to its logical conclusion, you end up with the central bank on behalf of the you know, independent central bank, of course, on behalf of the government uh, acquiring large swathes of the stock market. And then the uh, central banks really have nationalized vast swathes of the, the, the world economy. And I think that they can continue doing what they're doing for quite a while longer, unfortunately, uh, and can continue to appear to save the planet. Meanwhile, they allow companies that should, uh, because they're no longer competitive, go to the wall. And therefore, there is no space for the entrepreneurs uh, to raise the finance to do the thing that they're good at, which is creating productivity, enhancing economic growth. So we're, we're, 
Yeah, there's an argument from Robert Gordon, I think, at uh, Northwestern University that we, we've been through a 200-year period of economic uh, growth, the Industrial Revolution, and now we're going back to trend growth of 0.1.2 a year for the world economy, which uh, uh, is a frightening thought. But I, I, I suspect he may be proved right by the, uh, by the policies that we're currently adopting in order to try and keep the gravy train on track. Uh, I'm a great believer in Joseph Schumpeter's ideas of creative destruction. You can't, uh, you can't move forward without getting rid of the old. Do you think that um, that stability is really what is required of the financial markets? And, and by that, I mean, doesn't stability in the sh- relatively short term just build up a lot of volatility in the long term? Uh, yeah, you're you're spot on there. I think um, there's a there's a school of uh, uh, economic thinking about what they call free banking, and it, it at its heart is this conundrum. Um, if your company is limited by liability, uh, but you are also allowed to lend uh, uh, against fractional reserves, which is what a bank is able to do. It's kind of piling leverage upon leverage. Uh, If you go back to a system where as a bank, you have a choice, you can be limited by liability, but you can't lend against fractional reserves, or you can be unlimited by liability and you can, you, you actually create a more stable system because there is a when when leverage is involved there's a there's a tremendous moral hazard on the part of the uh, of, of the people managing these institutions uh, it, whether they uh, whether they intend to or they find themselves in that position uh, and and i think that plus the central banks becoming the lender of last resort uh, creates this condition for moral hazard the problem with that is that really the central banks were set up in order to finance the borrowings of the governments. That's why they, yeah, that's why they're allowed to continue being so omnipotent. Uh, and given that governments always need money, I can't see that we're going to get rid of the central banks that easily. But that's pretty radical stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a big question. Um, given your your analysis who have you been influenced by in terms of economic discipline probably probably we start with adam smith uh, I, I particularly like his idea of the invisible hand, but you have to put it in the context of his theory of moral sentiments, where he says that man has a great desire to be praiseworthy, not praised, but worthy of praise, and therefore the invisible hand works. And a lot of economists today suggest that you know, uh, the Nash equilibrium is more true and man isn't, uh, uh, that the, the, the invisible hand doesn't really work. And it, I think it does, providing you remember that the human condition is to be, uh, to, to wish to be worthy of praise. So you start from that point, you go through the kind of the classical liberal stream. One of my absolute heroes is the uh, the Frenchman from the Languedoc, uh, Frederick Bastiat. Um, I, I, I publish, republish quite a lot of my, uh, my newsletters uh, at the Cobden Centre. I'm a huge fan of the Cobden Centre and what they do, uh, but also of... Uh, 
the, the man after whom they were named, Richard Cobden, who refor- reformed the Corn Laws in the in the 1840s, 1850s. Um, uh, so that that's really where my my thinking comes from, and then it sort of passes down through uh, a lot of the Austrian school. I I, I do believe that you know, everything in sort of economic thinking starts with human action. To quote the title of one of the most influential uh, economic treaties that there is. Um, so that, that's where I come from. I, I, I think small government. Do you do you think there's any um, fair comparison between the Corn Law crisis of the 19th century and what Brexit represents today? But not least in relation to how the Conservative parties had to respond. Well, I haven't actually thought about that. Um, because, I mean, I, I, I don't know as much about the Corn Laws as I, as I should, given... Uh, how how significant it, it, it probably was at the time, but uh, what I am aware of is because uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's basically about sort of trade agricultural protectionism, but it's something that also caused a schism in the entire Conservative Party that lasted for decades. So in that case, uh, it's a bit like you. yeah, the, the agricultural protectionism uh, certainly hasn't gone away. If you look at the U.S. trade war situation. Uh, uh, the the complete mess, which is the common agricultural policy of uh, the EU as well. Um, the the difficulty I, I, with with the whole sort of free trade idea is the individual consumer. Uh, has never really formed into cohesive unions, you know, uh, demanding lower prices for things. Uh, you know, central banks have two percent inflation targets. Uh, you know. now there may be some merit to some aspects of the way they're thinking in aggregate. What it leads to is uh, an engineering of inflation where there shouldn't be. Uh, we. We wouldn't have to worry about average earnings being stagnant if human ingenuity allowed the price of goods to fall by 2% a year. We'd all be feeling wealthier. So That's a very good point. It, it, you know, and, and the argument is if there's deflation, everybody hoards money. Well, you know, we're now at the zero bound in an attempt to promote inflation. And guess what? People are hoarding money because, because they're not able to get a return on their money. Why, why do you think that two percent inflation target exists? Is, is do you think that's because that's an ex, what's deemed to be an acceptable rate of basically devaluing everybody's money uh, in order to support the debt load that governments have, have amassed? Uh, I think that what was it Keynes said about you know, the, the 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 economic policies of, uh, of of the world today? Usually the uh, the result of some long dead economist. Well, um, uh, unfortunately, there is a uh, there is a continued belief that uh, deflation is bad, uh, and and therefore mild inflation is good because it gives the it gives the economic system breathing room for trade to expand, and you don't end up with shortages of currency, and uh, and and that we should maintain the fiat currency approach. Um, and I I think if you take away currency and look at trade as trade, which is kind of part of the way the Austrian school 
tends to think about it than messing around with the uh, monetary aggregates, which is what that inflation target represents, is extremely dangerous in the long run, even though it may in the short term promote the economic growth that you're looking for to get re-elected. So you've got a um, you've got a letter that you put out recently. Value, momentum, and carry. Is it time for equity investors to switch? Which is a very good title. Can you tell us a bit about what you say in that? I guess I have a sort of view of how one should uh, invest, and the, the, there are uh, kind of two different um, strategies that I think work very well uh, over the very long term. One is the kind of value investing uh, approach, which is to look for good stocks at low prices and to uh, purchase them on that view. We, we've, never um, heard, we've never heard of that. That's, uh, that's no, no, no. That's a ridiculous strategy, uh, Colin, that anyone yeah, can buy. The, the only problem with that is you do need to uh, sort of manage the fact that you're buying things that are falling in price and they may continue to fall. So uh, having having a good, I mean, yeah, the key to successful risk uh, um, investment management is really the risk management and how you manage the, uh, the, the, the investment once you've uh, acquired it is key. Um, the, the, the other thing which continues to work because of the herd behavior of the human race uh, is momentum. So when something starts trending, you ride the trend. And um, what we've seen since 2007, 2008 and the financial crisis is interest rates being cut, which has led to money flowing out of bond markets as bond yields have got towards real zero rates because they're, they're ridiculously low. So people are hunting for better returns. And a lot of that has gone indiscriminately into the stock market because the stock market has been driven by interest rates. So you've had this uh, huge move into just following the trend uh, without any real analysis of value. Um, as interest rates have got towards zero, uh, you've also had this other slightly anomalous thing. When interest rates are high, uh, you know, it makes sense to look at growth stocks, but growth stocks have a tough job because of the cost of funding whilst they're still trying to grow their profitability. When interest rates are zero, growth stocks become much more attractive just because uh, you know, the cost of funding the never-never uh, is vastly uh, less expensive. So um, someone put it to me, they said, uh, I have a portfolio where I buy gold and unicorn stocks. And I thought about that for a little while. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting concept. But going back to the, the, the factors, um, I, I see the... I, I've seen this sort of 10 years of flow of funds <clears throat> into index funds uh, because they're inexpensive and the cost of, uh, of, of uh, investment in, uh, in, in stock market mutual funds, uh, the, the, the biggest single factor is the, uh, the, the, the commission charges uh, in the very long term. So, But that indiscriminate rush into those sort of products like all markets, when everybody crowds into the same thing and then 
the mood changes, everybody crowds out. It's the old analogy of being in the theatre on fire when everybody heads for the same exit. So I I do think that we've got a danger there. Uh, And the overlooked uh, opportunity in equity markets in particular for the last decade has been a a value-based approach. Uh, It's underperformed. Uh, but I think we're now at a stage where the you know, the momentum to push equity markets higher is is getting steadily less strong. Uh, you know, each higher high is uh, more begrudgingly achieved, and uh, it it seems to me to be suggesting that we should be thinking about uh, value-based investment strategies because they are a good defensive approach and because the stocks that uh, value-based investment processes show up are ones which should be around come the next crisis. Do you, do you think there's any wider significance to the fact that this, the WeWork uh, IPO got pulled and has just turned out into a sort of a real new economy, uh, digital economy um, horror show? Do you think there's any wider significance to that as potentially marking a, a, a near-term market top? It, it could certainly be a wake-up call, um, but we've had quite a few of those sort of wake-up calls. And I, another, another thing that I feel might be um, you know, a, a sign of the sort of the, the, the next crisis is the high-yield bond ETF market. Uh, back in Q4 of last year, uh, the high-yield ETFs uh, took a bit of a nosedive uh, along with the stock markets in general, uh, but they never quite fell apart. And what tends to happen is, w- w- with uh, financial markets that I've seen is you have enough liquidity to keep things together as markets correct, and then you reach an inflection point where people – where, where the shorter term investors can't 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 stomach the heat of the trade and get out of the kitchen, so to speak. So I don't know if the WeWork IPO being uh, being pulled is uh, is is the key signal. We'll we'll know with hindsight whether that was the turning point. Uh, but it, it I'd add it to a, a, an increasingly longer list of telltale signs that we're way overextended here. Yeah. If someone gave you £100,000 to invest right now, what what would you be considering doing with it? Oh, that's a, that's a, that's right now. That's a very tricky one because uh, the U S market has continued to lead the way. Um, Short term up to the U.S. elections, that's probably still a safe place to put your money, which might seem rather obtuse. Um, you could split emerging it. Market, sorry? You could split it between different products. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I always like the idea of having something in a trend-following strategy. Uh, I think a defensive play would be to put uh, some money into a – global value-based approach. Um, I I think there are plenty of really interesting stocks out there. I look from a top-down macro point of view, so I don't tend to look at individual names, but uh, uh, there are good uh, companies 
around the world that are, I think, undervalued and, and therefore will produce the long-term cash flows that a long-term investor should want. Uh, and you know, and and the momentum strategy still favors things such as the U.S. market, which continues to lead the way uh, in in this very late stage bull market. So I, you know, I I may not feel comfortable by being long U.S. equities, but you know the the market climbs a wall of fear, and you know, whilst I felt uncomfortable for five years being long the US equity market has still been rather a good trade. And it doesn't mean that I feel comfortable with it. So right. so it's that sort of mix. So I'd have a I'd have a strategy for getting me out of uh of of uh, those things that have been trending for a long time uh, and that's why I think a trend following strategy works well. Uh I would have a defensive strategy which would be using value uh in order to protect me from the downturn. And also gives me those long-term returns that uh, you know, will 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 show up in the fullness of time as value stocks uh, are, are recognised for the true value they're creating. Tim came out with a um, an expression. I'm I'm going to say it's his because I really like it. Um, that when it comes to the market, you could be dancing near the door in terms of it being a party. I guess yeah, enjoy, yeah, exactly. Enjoy the party but dance near the door. I, I can't remember where I first got that one, but that's been knocking around for a while. Yeah, I, I, I like that very, very much. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's definitely, definitely uh, the, 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 the right approach, I think, it, with all investing, actually. Uh, it doesn't mean you need to be you know, short term in that regard. Uh, uh, you, you you can dance near the door for a long time. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Around the world, are there are there any regions that excite you, just broadly? Uh, I'm always interested in uh, places where economic growth is uh, uh, it, it seems to be you know, in structural shift. So uh, I think in China the Numbers are probably quite out of line with reality, so I'm, I'm not sure that I, I trust the statistics there. Uh, in India, I, I suspect that actually the economic growth that's coming might be slightly understated. Um, uh, another another place where uh, economic growth has turned out to be rather stronger than they thought was in Nigeria, where when the statistics office uh, finally uh, dusted off their calculations, they found that they'd understated by, uh, I think it was over 20%. And suddenly it turned out that Nigeria was the largest economy in Africa, not South Africa. So uh, there's, and that, that this, the, the same thing has happened in Ghana. So I mean, no, uh, nothing, the, says, nothing says trustworthy like Nigerian statistics. Uh, well, it, that's that's very true. Uh, one of the things that I do think is always good to look at, whilst the statistics themselves may be quite flawed, uh, a more useful thing to look at from an investment point of view is the uh, direction of travel of the statistical series. So, you know, Chinese economic growth has probably been overstated for a long time, but Chinese economic growth is steadily the you know, the momentum is 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 steadily diminishing um uh, th- those sort of um 
statistical series, I think, still can give you some useful insights, even though the underlying method of calculation may be out. And you, know, you take a, a statistic like uh, GDP, the revision and revision and revision mean that the, the headline figure may be way out of line with what happens in reality. So looking at the very long-term uh, trends, I think, is more useful, particularly from a macroeconomic point of view. It's one of my favorite stories of the last couple of years. There was a, a case that a, a guy in Nigeria died, and they found something like $10 million buried under his floorboards. And you got the sense that the poor guy, the poor sod, had been trying to give it away for years, and no one ever took him seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I did hear that story, yes. Uh, and uh, having had a few of those emails myself, as I'm sure everybody else has, uh, you know, what, what immediately puts them in the, uh, in, in, in the trash. Uh. <laughs> there's, a, there's a brilliant um, YouTube video of this guy who responds to one of these sp spammers, and it's just hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, no, I, I haven't. Uh, so he actually I, I have, he, he draws him into shallow water, and it's just so funny. Um, he gets him to he says, "If you want to communicate with me, I want you to use a code, some code system." So he gives him these really ridiculous words to use, and, and instead of saying money and all this other all this other stuff, and he gets him to to, to have a different handle, and it's just great. And so it, it goes it goes backwards and forwards, and it's. He just reads it out in this TED talk. It's just so funny. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but it was very entertaining. Oh, that does sound good. I I, I look forward to watching that. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds completely childish to me, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's the return of the Halloween sound machine. Just when, <laughs> right. you, thought, just when you thought you were safe. Just when we thought the batteries had run out. It's like... Oh, it's a brand new one. It's an all new Halloween sound machine. <laughs> oh my goodness, mate. Hours of fun for all the family until Donna yeah, yeah. crosses it under yeah. her foot. You're quite quite sure that wasn't a recording from the last FOMC meeting. <laughs> <laughs> oh excellent um so we haven't mentioned brexit yet well, i was gonna to say what 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 do you think i mean I, I i wouldn't mind a steer on this because pushing a general election um how is that going to help brexit I don't think it is. And so, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm confused why there's optimism about it, just because there's a general election possibility. I, I guess it gives people a chance to decide if they really want uh, the proposals of the Labour Party or if they should uh, sort of circle the wagons and stick stick with the Conservatives. Uh we we do have difficulty getting stuff done with minority governments. Um, now that may be because we haven't got a lot of experience of it here uh, in Europe. Their approach to uh, politics is rather different because they've been dealing in sort of uh, coalition uh, approach to government for many more years. Particularly, uh, I think of that in Germany. Um, but yeah, the whole. The, uh, 
I started out being quite optimistic about Brexit when the uh, vote first came out. I was very surprised by the vote. Uh, it took me a while to realise that you know, people weren't necessarily thinking about Brexit the same way that I was, uh, which is probably rather naive of me. Um, I, about two and a half years ago, I wrote a wrote an article saying you know, we should it's called it's entitled walking away uh which is funnily enough is actually a quote from a Cecil day lewis but but that's by the by uh, what i have um uh, come to conclude is that the thing that's doing the most damage to the uk economy and indeed to the european economy uh, is the uncertainty of not knowing what's going to happen next. And we really do need to get closure, whether that's through a no deal, an out, or a deal, which looks more likely now, uh, and out, or uh, you know, a, a second referendum and everybody gets to have a second bite of the cherry, which uh, uh, I, f I feel is uh, a bit of an abrogation of the democratic process. But... Um, say, the, say the economy's sort of suffered. I mean, my, my friend Nick Hubble at uh, South Bank Investment Research has a slightly different take. So he, he recently put out a, a admittedly snarky and uh, that had the following thing. Unemployment down, GDP up, FDI, foreign direct investment record, inflation, sweet spot, stock market, all time highs. We demand three more years of Brexit chaos. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Yes. Uh, and, so it's, and, not a mitigated, and, it's not a mitigated disaster, but the other one I quite liked, there was, a, there was a letter in the Telegraph that I tweeted earlier today, which was from someone, uh, Julia Forbes-Leith in, in Cheshire. Sir, when we stayed with friends, their lively six-year-old granddaughter could not find my husband to say goodbye when it was time for her to go to school. She wrote him a quick note. Dear Jim, goodbye. I'm off. Love, Emma. Should we put her in charge of Brexit? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm glad we've got some uh, levity in, in in what has been a rather grim affair. Yeah. So the uh, we've been actually very very lucky. I think that uh, world economic growth has uh, has has lifted all ships. Uh, had 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 this occurred during a, a, a significant downturn in economic growth. Uh, I, I think it would have looked very different. So yes, you know, we're, exactly. all, we're all, you, know, you could also make the argument we're at all time highs in the stock market despite Brexit. Yes. Think how much higher we would be if we hadn't had all that uncertainty. Right. Uh, and also from an economic point of view, uh, what a marvelous thought that you know, three years of, un of pent up economic growth and decision making and all of that is going to be a huge boon to the UK and the European economies uh, as soon as we finally you know, buried the hatchet and uh, sorted out our differences, at least for the next few months. Um, and and there will be a significant boost from getting this deal done. And now the anticipation is that it's going to happen. So there's optimism possibly misplaced. But um, uh, it's a it's a it's a difficult call. You 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 have to see the markets in terms of uh, where they are and 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 you know, where they'd be were it not for the things like the uncertainty of Brexit. What what I do know is that uncertainty makes it very difficult for people to make decisions. So if 
companies can't make decisions about investments. The only thing to do is buy back stock or uh, maybe increase the dividend, um, all of which is supportive to equity prices, but it, but it isn't supportive to the long-term health of those companies. So the one, the one thing I find is that it's been a terrific disappointment is that in, in all of this debate and three and a half years of agonizing process, no one, to my knowledge, on the Remain side has ever acknowledged just how dire the economic situation, particularly the financial and banking situation is in, in the Eurozone. So the analysts that I've probably followed more closely than anybody else over the last six months has been Russell Napier, formerly of, of CLSA. And I don't know if you've seen any of his pieces, but these, these are available through the ERIC, Electronic Research Interchange um, website. Uh, he, he's made the point that effectively you've got a bank run going on in Europe because people, institutions are taking money out of, for example, German banks, but not just German banks, and lending it to the, uh, the German government instead. Because even, even at sort of negative 50 basis points or whatever bunts are yielding, that's a, that's a safer bet than it is having money in a bank, which might well be insolvent. And, you know, and he says there is a word for that behavior, and it's called a run on the bank. And you look at the performance of, I think it's the Euro Stocks Banks Index, and it's, 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 it's an unmitigated disaster. But no one, no one is saying, no, no one is making the case on the Remain side, well, hang on a second, maybe actually there are some very sensible reasons to want to get out of the, you know, the EU. And one of them is we don't want to be held responsible for this gigantic mess when it finally blows up. Uh, that's... Uh... That's a very interesting take on it, isn't it? Um, the, the the problem with the U.S. money markets that I was talking about at the beginning of this uh, uh, podcast, the same issue is happening in Europe, isn't it? Where on that point, on that point, um, Colin, what what is in your view what is behind that sort of weird weird behaviour in uh, in the U.S. Uh, in, in in the equivalent of U.S. LIBOR? <laughs> Behind the, uh, the the problem in the U.S. That, okay, so wind the clock back. You have the the financial crisis, uh, the U.S. being a more ho- cohesive whole and uh, not having to you know, corral twenty seven different countries into making a decision. Uh, we're able to move faster. They cut. <coughs> They cut interest rates. They they instituted TARP, Troubled Asset Relief Program, which which basically gave the U.S. banks the opportunity to say, "Here are my non-performing loans. They're yours," uh, and and that kind of that cleared the way. That was a sort of that was almost a Schumpeterian approach, except that it was that you know, somebody else had to pay for it, um, <laughs> the taxpayer, um, and so the U.S. banking system has been nominally better shaped than Europe. And yet in the US, the banks don't really want to lend to one another. Uh, you know, the, the the rumor mill is grinding overtime about maybe one particular institution uh, being the weakest link. Um, you know, the suggestion is it's not the US banks, it's the exposure the US banks have to. Yeah. And the name that pops up is uh, is inevitably Deutsche Bank, although I think that yeah. might uh, that 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 might be a difficult one, uh, given the name of the bank and their uh, their importance uh, strategically to the German uh, government. I, I I don't think that they're necessarily going to be allowed to fail. Uh, but I think, I think the thing to bear in mind about the, the poor stockbrokers at Deutsche Bank is they were only obeying orders at the end of the day. Yeah. 
No, that's that's absolutely true. And we're in this situation where back in 2007-8, the problem was too much debt and the solution was to cut interest rates to zero and allow uh, everybody to leverage to the hilt. And now we have even more debt. Great solution. What we've done is we've postponed the inevitable bust. Now, can it be postponed for a little longer by buying the entire stock market with uh, uh, with public funds through the expansion of central bank balance sheets? Unfortunately, it probably can. Uh, in the process, uh, growth is going to be ground lower and lower. Um, companies that shouldn't exist will be allowed to continue to exist. And so we have exacerbated the problem. What's happening in the US is also likely to occur in Europe. The The European Central Bank has got a, a floor and a cap to uh, money market rates. I forget what they name them. Everybody has a different name for their sort of caps and floors. In the, in the US, they just have the floor, which is the uh, rate paid on uh, Deposits at the uh, at the Federal Reserve, so they they have perhaps some more difficulty in controlling their overnight uh, secured rate, but um, the problem that we see in the U.S. is exactly the same problem in Europe, if not more so in Europe. Is is there a concern in your mind that this might be? We, we had something similar happening in the in, in let's say in the the credit markets uh, in the run up to the 07 crisis when you started to see liquidity drying up and uh, a few money market funds being shut. Yes, breaking the buck. Um, I've had a long conversation with somebody last last week about uh, a new asset-backed security which was going to contain one year or less U.S. Treasury securities. Um, all sounds very sensible. And of course, the reason for putting it in ABS was there was a little yield enhancement and 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 all of those sort of things. Um, I think that we have some difficulties with in in the sort of the plumbing of the money markets with a shortage of the right kind of collateral. Uh, you know, a loss of government securities. Are already locked away uh, in the vaults of the Federal Reserve. Um, they probably need more um, eligible securities that can be used uh, as collateral in order to make the system work. They're, the 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 regulators are busy getting rid of LIBOR, which uh, will no longer be a, a a a rate that you can use after the third of January, 2022. Um, and yet there are multiple contracts. You know, the BIS estimate that $400 trillion of uh, financial contracts are referenced against LIBOR. That was as at the middle of 2018. When they all roll off uh, you know, from January 2022, the replacement is going to be an overnight rate. There's going to be two things. One is people won't be as comfortable with the volatility of that overnight rate, and therefore uh, that's going to probably act as a drag on issuance. Uh, added to which, the only people who are really going to do well out of the, <clears throat> the the transition from libel are probably going to be the litigation lawyers, because everybody's going to argue about the contracts that are still outstanding and what is used as a replacement. You know, if you move 
Libor to uh, overnight index swap rate. Uh, it favours one side rather than the other side of each contract. So there'll, there'll be an enormous amount of horse trading, and that will just slow the intermediation process some more. So the, the, the problem is sort of risk credit transfer within the banking system, and there's nothing really that the central bank can do uh, to, to ameliorate that problem, except that they allow everybody to open an account at the central bank. If you were, if you were responsible for either the Fed or, or any other the major central banks, what, what, what would you do to try and change the system, dare I say, improve the system? What would you do, for example, with interest rates? Uh, with interest rates, I definitely wouldn't be taking them any lower. Uh, <clears throat> I would, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I would probably be fully prepared to utterly fall out with every politician. I'm, I'm trying to remember the, the, the Fed governor who said that my job is to take away the punch bowl. Mm. I, I think you need higher interest rates um, in order to encourage people to save. And once they've started saving, then to invest. Um, is is the problem with that not that that uh, if you put interest rates up, basically the bond market collapses and then you have a kind of Armageddon style event because no one's ever seen a, a bond bear market in the last 40 years? Uh, yeah, uh, I think you need to get money back as the means of uh, of of identifying what's good value and what's not. With interest rates this slow, it's not possible to make sense of it. But to move interest rates back up means that you have a crash in the bond market, followed by a crash in the equity market, followed by a wiping out of uh, of, of, of many things. Uh, and you know the pension funds that already have unfunded liabilities will have an even larger hole in their liabilities. But this is all part of what you know. What we've, you know, we're 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 merely reaping what we've sown. Um, do this feels like the sort of late stages of a Ponzi scheme, but it could be continued for a little while longer. But the longer we continue down this road, the larger the eventual reckoning is going to be. For people who are seeking refuge, do you, do you see any refuge in in commodities such as gold and silver and or cryptocurrencies? I think the jury's still out on cryptocurrencies because of um, the question of the you know, it's not the return on my money, it's the return of my money, to use that old expression. Uh, th there's uncertainty about the security of the system um, and you know, uncertainty about who really owns it and you know, the whole question of mining monopolies and and all of that so i think there are some there are some definite uncertainties there uh the barbarous relic has to be part of uh what everybody thinks about the the the, the value of gold uh as a safe haven uh a store of value uh rather than a medium of medium of exchange um yeah, Mark Twain's great, uh, great statement. You know, buy land; they ain't making it anymore. Uh, obviously, you know, land is uh, uh, is all about location, location, location. But uh, uh, yeah, uh, real assets uh, definitely are worth considering. Um, at the moment, 
you know, things like uh, the contemporary art uh, have had a good run. If you enjoy buying wine, uh, <clears throat> the price of Burgundy is probably something you've uh, uh, you've been noting over the last few years. Quite a lot of those sort of assets are probably a function of the excess liquidity in the market. So it's not clear cut to me that uh, this is going to protect you from the downdraft, but a little bit like, well, we should buy value-based investment uh, uh, managers because they've underperformed for 10 years. Uh, it's always it's always a good idea to, to 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 have some investments in the things that have been out of favour because if the market collapses there weren't many people who were holding them and therefore they won't go down very much and it may be that you know when people are rotating out of the stuff that's suddenly having a terrible downturn they will go into those kind of defensive stocks and stocks that have good value. So I tend to come back to equities as being probably a good place to continue to have a large percentage of one's uh, uh, one's wealth, but but be aware that a 40 or 50% correction in the stock market can't be ruled out. Since we had our last um, podcast, we've had the 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 final demise of Woodford Investment Management. Do you think the the fate of of Neil Woodford and his funds uh, has any lessons that that uh, we should we should take away? <laughs> that uh, whenever you buy uh, an investment product, be aware of what is inside the investment product, um, and understand the. The, the liquidity uh, issues surrounding it. Um, Woodford's funds appear to have been invested to a large illiquid and uh, non-public equities. Um, I, I don't know the full details. Um, it can take months, even years, to unwind at reasonable rates because there isn't a liquid two-way market in many of those securities, offering investors the opportunity to invest in a fund that you can exit in two or three days and get your money in a week, uh, creates the situation where, a little bit like the run on the bank, you get a run on the investment manager. You know, he's, he's borrowing short and lending long. Uh, and, and it's the same weakness that the, the, that has been observed in banking forever. So, uh, yeah, the, the the lessons from Woodford are, are as old as the hills, uh, uh, which is the investments themselves may be perfectly good, but the liquidity mismatch between people's ability to invest uh, and disinvest uh, and the underlying uh, investments are not aligned. Um during the 2008-9 crisis, many hedge funds imposed uh, uh, sort of locks on capital, um, which they had, you know, they were entitled to do in terms of uh, memorandum. The effect was rather unfortunate for funds such as managed futures funds, which saw uh, liquidation because they were offering either monthly, weekly, even daily liquidity to their investors because they were invested in 
deep liquid futures markets. But you know, the redemptions were not because the managed futures managers were uh, doing a bad job. It was just because the investors couldn't get their money out of the hedge funds that had suddenly locked their capital for the foreseeable future. And what we're seeing with Woodford is just a redux of that mismatch in liquidity. Um, it appears we've learned absolutely nothing in the last 10 years. Somebody, somebody once said that, that all political careers end in failure. Would you say the same thing uh, of fund managers, that everybody ultimately ends up like a bit of an idiot if they if they outstay their welcome in the market. Uh, absolutely. So should we should we go to on that note? Should we go to media picks on that bombshell? <laughs> on that bombshell, should we go to media picks? I, I, I want to just crowbar yet another weak uh, war related uh, joke about Deutsche Bank. So the the, the sec- my second attempt at Deutsche Bank levity will be uh, um, the one thing they say there at the Deutsche is uh, don't don't mention the VAR. <laughs> <laughs> That's a highly technical joke that will no doubt fall like a lead balloon onto our audience. Oh, marvellous. Yeah, I, I, I do remember uh, that. Had... <laughs> we got oh, one of them. Still thinks these little minds. Was, was, that Janet, was that Janet Yellen? <laughs> it was Janet again. It was Janet. Uh, yes, the... Uh... <laughs> Marvelous. Yes, yes, media pitch. Yeah, um, I'm just trying to uh, trying to think of something that was uh, very pressing. I, I, I'll tell you what I I did rather like, um, <clears throat> and it's on the minutiae of what what happened last month with the with the Fed, and that is uh, the Chicago Fed letter, uh, and I have forgotten the exact title of the letter, uh, um, which was explaining what had happened in the money markets. Uh, and so forth. It it gives a good explanation of the mechanics. What they don't really say is uh, what the problems, what the more inherent long-term problems are. They 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 allude to the fact that you know the banks seem to be keener to lend money to the Fed rather than to each other, uh, but. That is really at the heart of the issue, but it's it's a it's a good technical document, uh, and given the column inches that have been written by everybody else, including me, uh, it's you know, it gets to the heart of the matter in about four pages. So I, I think that's a you know, little feather in the cap for the research department at the Chicago Fed. Right. So we'll get a link to that put on the on the website on the show notes. Tim, right. What what have you what have you got for us? I've got I've got two. Um, the first is a, a recent discovery uh, a, a, for, for me anyway. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Scott Galloway, who is at Prof Galloway on Twitter, but he has a, a blog called No Mercy, No Malice, which is the most outstanding commentary on on the digital economy and the uh, the world of IT and public markets that I've ever seen. So he has some quite excoriating commentary in relation to the demise of uh, WeWork and probably possibly uh, a f- one of the biggest frauds that we, we may, may yet see. But it's absolutely brilliantly written. It's just it's just no holds barred stuff. It's very, very funny. So that's that's uh, you can get that at profgalloway.com, but it's called No Mercy, No Malice, and it, it really is outstanding stuff. I mean, I, I'm always impressed by, by no quality writing, and this is, this is absolutely the case. The second is really on the same theme. 
my my perhaps my favorite columnist on the topic of Brexit is uh, John Gray, and John Gray's um, had got some some new pieces out in uh, in the New Statesman, uh, and they're just they're just exceptionally good. So I I, I can never recommend John Gray uh, highly enough. Um, and I'll just see if I've actually got the uh, I got it saved. Uh, I probably do. It's yes, it's called the closing of the conservative mind. Um, but it's about effectively where we are, uh, politics and the art of war. But it's just fantastic stuff. Brilliant. Fantastic. Well, I'll uh, put, obviously put links to those. Mine for this week is um, I saw a fantastic documentary about the highest rank, ranked chess player of all time. Uh, his name's Magnus Carlsen, and it's um, called Magnus, and it's on... I think it's on Amazon Prime, but it's absolutely excellent. So I, I really enjoyed that. If you like chess, it's great. And even if you don't like chess, it's still a really interesting documentary about him. So, you know, I, I definitely catch that. And I one one for the avoid column is um, I, I, I took this for the team. So I managed to watch and get to the end of this so you don't have to. And it's called... Took one for the team. You took, I, one. you took a bullet for the lads. I did. It's called Absolutely Anything. And it's a film with Simon Pegg and Kate Beckinsdale, which you think probably wouldn't be that bad. It was written by Terry Jones of Monty Python fame with you know a lot of the guys from Monty Python featuring, featuring cameos in it. But it was absolutely awful. It's just so bad, like so badly written, so badly executed... It was just there was no redeeming factors. And does it does it does it compare to um, the Ray Cooney, uh, the, the uh, film no, of the Ray Cooney? No, it's better than that. Is, is it is it is it as bad as that? No, it's not. It's not as bad. It's not, there's very little that's but as bad as that. That's true. Actually, it isn't a league of its own. Yeah, but but it is still really bad. It's just like sort of childhood. I mean, the the, the idea is this: Simon Pegg, uh, the main lead character, who is a teacher. Um, gets the ability due to a far off being like you know highly intelligent being somewhere in a distant galaxy they decide to give someone the ability to do absolutely anything to see whether the human race is worth saving or whether they should just blow us up and so you get to see what simon pegg does with this ability and where it goes and it's just it's just ridiculous it's just like i didn't find it particularly funny and there's a couple this, of, there's a couple this, of good laughs was this crowdfunded by any chance? I, I, no, I don't think so. I don't know. But it was, it's just awful. It was just really clunky sort of, you know, it's got Eddie Izzard in it as well. And it's, it, it, there's a, oh the voice oh of, well, I mean, I, I quite like Eddie Izzard. I like Oh yeah, his, no, he's his, a lovely guy. Well, he's a great comic and sadly he's got Brexit derangement syndrome. But, yeah, uh, that, there may be that, but he's, um, it, the, there's a dog, a talking dog in it. And that's played by Robin Williams, which... I can. The reason for having the dog in there is is like just because of Robin Williams, basically. So they kind of shoehorned in a, a talking dog for that reason. And you you think you've got a winner there if you put all those names out on the table, but unfortunately, it's just it just doesn't work. Um, there are and, a few things in this world more satisfying than a really awful film, though. Uh, well, you might like it. I'd be in I'd a be strange in... way. I, I know what you mean. Punishment. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Um, it, it may be it may be your sort of humour. If you've got kind of quirky, you know, really out there humour, then then that might work. But um, but you, have, you you haven't seen Jokey yet, by the way, have you? Talking no, of, I haven't. No, I haven't. no, no, okay, because uh, yeah, no, you've got to see it. It's just so good, so so good. But anyway, 
well, well, uh, we'll come back to that one day when you have. But, um, but look, just to say, Colin Lloyd, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, just remind us again of your uh, your blog website. Yeah, that's in the long run.co.uk. Fantastic. And if the listeners would like to get hold of you to to drop your line, um, how would they do that? Uh, you can find me very easily on LinkedIn. Uh, uh, I'm up there. Um, but my email address, CD Lloyd, that's double L O Y D, at blueyonder.co.uk. Fantastic. Happy to, happy to hear from anyone. Do you do Twittering at all, or is that not your thing? Uh, not really. Only uh, only as a sort of a link to my my blog. Although I m- I may change all of that in the not too distant future because uh, uh, in some idle moments I have uh, uh, written but not quite finished editing a uh, a first novel which is a financial thriller. Ah, oh, uh, fantastic! Which, uh, which might uh, which might amuse the, the 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 audience listening here. Well, when it's finished and ready to rock, please let us know, because we'd love to have you back on the show to talk about it. Yeah, uh, it's called Meltdown. Fantastic. Yeah, exactly. That sounds like a light romantic comedy of (laughs) a... Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, that sounds fantastic. When do you think you'll finish it by? If you'd asked me two years ago, I have said six months, but it's a kind of a rolling six months. Right. Uh, build so, us two weeks, uh, is it? It's like, yeah. It's it's finding it's finding time. The the the, the writing didn't take very long. The editing is taking a, a, an eternity. Um, but uh, I, I'm I'm getting there. And uh, can you, can you give us a quick, a quick spoiler, Colin? Okay, a quick spoiler. Uh, 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 unusual for financial markets. That's a heroine, uh, and the heroine is working for. It's normally, co- it's normally cocaine, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It, the, the heroine is working for an investment bank uh, in, in in the near future, where we've all moved to digital ledger, you know, blockchain technology. Uh, the markets go into meltdown. The all she's really doing is watching over the computers uh, because there aren't traders anymore. Uh, the markets collapse. Uh, she meets a debonair American investment banker who turns out to be the baddie, uh, and a whole load of gold is stolen from the vaults. Brilliant, uh, brilliant, and, brilliant. brilliant. And, and then she goes in search of the gold because she gets seconded by MI6 against her will. They find the gold. They set up a, 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 a challenger bank in the process, uh, and it finishes up with her being asked to do some more work for MI6. Well, there you, you go. So spoil, spoil the whole thing. You've got to write it now. Somebody might who, listen who to is, it and who, do, decide. Who is going to play her in the film, Colin? I, I haven't thought that far. I've just got to try and get the first three chapters right because uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff to explain in the first three chapters, and I've got to keep my audience happy at the same time, and that's that's proving to be the biggest challenge. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. But anyway, it's uh, it, it's uh, it, it, it's a it's a bit of life light fluff for the beach, but uh, but but in the middle of that is the worries that I have about digital ledger. Uh, which I think is a brilliant idea. As I said, uh, mm. uh, smart contracts will change the way because they they they, they will you know, get rid of the biggest single impediment to doing trade globally, which is having to trust your counterparties because 
there has to be an element of trust. If you can get rid of the need for that element of trust, you could have a massive increase in 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 uh, uh, in, in, in world trade. But the other side to it is everything happens instantly. Mm. Uh, you know, when the Fed stepped in after LTCM and said, "Now, boys, we're not going to stop lending to one another, are we?" Uh, you know, uh, slightly a, a redux of Hitler putting the gun on the table and saying we won't have any more inflation. Uh, you can do it as long as you haven't got instant settlement. When you've got instant settlement, you have a real problem. Mm. And uh, yeah, the whole meltdown starts with the default on an enormous bond issue, uh, which contains all the bad loans of all the banks of Europe. Yes, that sounds very prescient. Amazing. So <laughs> yeah, uh, I know. But if I don't get it published, it'll all yeah. bloody well happen. Yeah, it? that's right. So yes, please. You heard it. You heard it here first, guys. Yes, indeed. That's <laughs> absolutely brilliant, Colin. Thank you so much, and uh, good luck with the book. And we'll be definitely reading your blog, and hope to have you back very soon. Thanks a lot, Paul. Okay. Thanks a lot. Tim. Take care. Thanks, Colin. Bye now. Bye now. Bye. Bye bye. So, Tim, you're going to stay on the line for Ask Tim Price. Is that all right? Ah, okay. That's yeah. fine by me. Yeah, okay. So, so in this section, we ask Tim Price. And uh, thank you to Millionaire Mentor for su- suggesting the idea of what Tim thinks, which is what this is based on. And we should go to his question first, which is a quite a long one, Tim. So just hold on a moment. I might have to break this up into sections. You may may have read it, read it on Twitter already. I'm not sure. but Possibly. But yeah. So, do you think that the government, or the state we could call it, as people believe the BOE is independent, had a policy of house price inflation between 1997 and March 2017? Yes, yes, yes. yes. And that the aim of the policy was to effectively increase the money supply in a hidden way to make voters feel good, uh, being wealthier and having more money to spend, and for the resulting inflation to be hidden because house prices are not included in the inflation figures? It's a very cunning suggestion. Yeah, I, 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 that's that seems to me that there's, there's a lot of a lot of validity to that argument. Also, and that I, oh, sorry, sorry, go on, go no, on. No, please, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just just going to say, uh, and on that note, uh, I'm looking forward to the fact that we'll be having uh, Liam Halligan joining us in the not too distant future, and he's just written a book about UK property market. Excellent, so. excellent. Oh, I look forward to that. Um, also, that Tony Blair bought off the middle classes with rising house prices and subsequent governments could not admit what had happened and simply carried on the feel good feeling or the feel good yeah. policy. All of this, all of this sounds eminently, eminently plausible to me. And the uh, fact that, yeah, that that um, that that. That property doesn't really feature in, forget it, it's RPI or CPI. I mean, it's a scandal. It's a complete scandal. Which just goes to show how absurd the you know, the inflation rates are when you know, they don't take into account what, for most people, is the single biggest uh, outgoing that they have. Uh, it, it go, it, there is a bit more to it, so I'll just read yeah. it. It reads a bit like a statement as well as a question, but yeah. it sounds a bit more like a statement to me. But also that the UK's productivity and structural problems were effectively hidden because we are all rich now because through house prices so no need to worry about increasing productivity or structural reform of the economy or the welfare state yeah i, I think i think there's something to, to, to each of these suggestions the on the topic of productivity i think productivity in the uk is understated uh because we i always keep hearing how, about, how, about, how the french are more productive than we are well anyone that's ever spent any time with the french knows that they they, they do nothing but sleep all day so <laughs> Tim, how, how on how on Tim. earth they 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 have a more productive economy than we do it's just nonsense 
Um, so you I are the think, Jeremy Clarkson. Apples with apples. You are the Jeremy Clarkson in the financial world, aren't you? Tim? <laughs> you don't drive this car. You hang on. <laughs> right. Okay. And and there's two more bits. No, basically, to it. yes, 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 yes. And there's two more bits to this. So, we're, we're, and after the financial crisis, part one, the policy of house price inflation was continued and supported by a dishonest emergency base rate and QE. Yeah, I mean, were, were, were base rates um, taken taken out to the wood pile um, just to, to bail out householders? Well, there's possibly something to that, but probably probably it's more to do with the the health of the banking system, um, yeah. and obviously the fact that you know the government has so much debt which it needs to service. So uh, there's a lot there's a lot of stuff to unpack here, and I'd, I'd probably want to do to do so more formally over as probably a, 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 a text piece rather than just sort of spluttering along yeah. along here but yeah. um no i think there's a lot to that i think there's an awful lot to that and um clearly i mean we, colin touched on it earlier the, i think any sentient being who is in charge of monetary policy would, would be much happier raising rates now the problem is that it, it's like that you know that again that, that old joke you know someone asking for directions and the response is well i wouldn't start from here yeah but the reality is we are starting from here so you know, I remember meeting a, a prospective client um, a few weeks ago, and we were talking about. I, I was just highlighting the fact that you know, when I, and you'll be in broadly similar territory, I'm sure. When I uh, left university, uh, I firstly I didn't have to take out a 50 grand loan, so I was the 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 the, the notional stuff was paid for by my local education authority back in the 80s, uh, and then I was able. It wasn't I. It wasn't easy, but I, I secured a job. Uh, which turned out to be a job in the city. And then a few years after that, I had the, the the relative good fortune to be able to put down a deposit and buy a house or a flat. Now, each of those steps today is virtually impossible for someone who's, you know, sort of an 18-year-old or something. So firstly, the, the degree course, if there's merit to it anyway, and I've seen some interesting tweets, and I think actually Millionaire Mentor himself made this point on Twitter a while ago, which is, do you really need universities now? Because you can, there's, there's so much online learning, uh, which is also free. So, I mean, I, I, I chipped in by saying, you know, it's a bit like the, the situation. I think it was Bill Gates that said banking is necessary, but banks aren't. Uh, and that was, that was a prescient remark if it, if it was him. Uh, and that was probably said 20, 25 years ago. But on the same lines, Education is necessary, but universities aren't. Mm. So you know, the whole educational system is, is sort of morphing uh, on online, as, as so many other industries are. Yes. Um, but I was just making the point, you know, when we were having this discussion with with this guy some weeks back, that each of those stages is not really viable anymore. So the free university thing that's gone. That's that's been replaced by a, a, a an, an uns, probably say un, unsupportable amount of debt that's going to be a a real burden for most people who take it on. Secondly, the uh, the job market is nowhere near as as benign as it was even in the I'd say in the early nineties. And then thirdly, property is unaffordable, uh, particularly in the southeast of England for anyone that's trying to get a foot on the ladder. So, how do you raise rates in that environment? Well, actually, in a sense, it does it does kind of help uh, answer the question. You can you can raise rates, and among that demographic, that would be politically popular. It would be popular for the young. For property prices to come down consistent with, with with hiking rates, but but the people who you disadvantage, of course, the people who are hugely beneficiaries of, of higher property prices, namely the elderly, um, the middle aged and elderly who who've ridden this um, bandwagon quite happily for the last you know thirty years or whatever it is. So 
there's there's a war if you like there's a war on for the let's say the uh, the fate the fate of the younger generation now yeah and they ought to be behind they ought to be behind high rates and they'd also be behind high rates because it enable them to save um constructively rather than have um zero yielding accounts yes Yes, it, it does seem, to, I mean, it seems to me that it's more of a byproduct of low interest rates rather than an actual strategy that they've yes, deployed because, because they're going to be worried more about the, the bond markets and their ability for the government to borrow than house price inflation itself. But it doesn't hurt that it keeps the voters happy or, the, you know, the demographic of voters happy. Yeah, this was, it was, it was actually from um, Stephen Wilkinson, uh, who, who pointed out this morning that, uh, uh, this chap, um, Safe Dean Amos, who's written about on the, the Bitcoin standard. I think I've got a copy of his book, actually. Uh, he says, check out Safe Dean tweet yesterday on the reasons he's giving up his tenure and starting his own online institute. Mm. So you know, it, the web isn't just affecting you know, retail, it's affecting everything. And uh, you know, higher education is not going to be immune to this. Yes. But I think it's quite exciting. I do too, yeah. Um, finally, do you think Tony Blair should be put on trial and the BOE's powers restricted, leaving markets to determine interest rates. Uh, I mean, I've, I won't comment on the topic of Blair, so I don't have a strong view on that. Um, in relation to the Bank of England, um, yeah, I've, 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 I've been quite consistent. I, I noticed that Sir sort of Collins says it, it would be difficult to reform central banks because their primary role is to raise money for for the state. But notwithstanding that, I, I would I would move heaven and earth. To, to try and ensure that that the interest rates were set by the market and not by a not by a tool of government. Right. Um, and finally, we have got a call in from Joseph Harris uh, from Aberdeen, and so uh, I'll just play you his voice message. Okay. Hi, Tim and Paul. It's Joe here from Aberdeen. Many thanks for the excellent podcasts. Uh, fairly enjoyable. My question is: If there was a bout of hyperinflation in the Western world. Do you think society and civilization would survive, or do you think it would uh, have have a major social unrest in that eventuality? Many thanks, and keep up the great work. What a great question, and what a great accent! Yeah, what a, well, thank you for the uh, for the kind uh, sentiments, Joe. Um, good question. So, do do we do we get hyperinflation? I guess is the first question. Um, I remember long sparring with the likes of Martin Wolf over how likely hyperinflation was. And he always said it was basically impossible because, you know, because central banks are, are godlike figures that have all you know, absolute power and omniscience. Oh, that's I'm just not so sure. That's um, so I, I, I just think that although hyperinflation might be an unlikely scenario, the, the possibility is not nil. The, 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 poss the possibility or probability of, 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 let's say, a messily high outbreak of inflation is not zero. I don't know what the figure is, but it's not zero. What would the impact be? Well, you look at the impact of hyperinflation in the Weimar period on, on uh, Germany and Austria, and the ultimate result was a world war. Um, and you could argue that the whole thing was triggered by the, the um, unrealistic demands uh, led by um, the Allies for reparations. But either way, uh, hyperinflation, no, no, nobody benefits from, from the stuff. So uh, in that sense, that's, that's when I really would you know, say that the role of, of, of being at the Fed or the Bank of England or, or their equivalents is, is something I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy because I, I just think they've, they've got the most impossible job trying to, trying to steer us through the wreckage of, of what may be to come. Um, but, I mean, society adapts. But yes. ideally, we never get it in the first place. So Again, as per the, the conversation we just had with Colin, it really comes down to, would it be possible for 
central banks to just raise, slowly raise interest rates to some level of normalcy, to normality, rather than just keep on cutting like the ECB seems determined to do. Um, I think the longer we get um, ZERP and NERP, the more likely hyperinflation is as an outcome. But ideally, some kind of sanity will will reassert itself before then. But you know, this is a political problem. This is not just an economic problem. This is a problem of politicians. And there has yet been the political will to, you know, to, 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 to get economic matters resolved. As a result, you know, politicians have basically been asleep at the wheel and they've left this this policy vacuum into which central bankers perhaps understandably have stepped and said, OK, well, we're going to we're going to do what we can, you know, whatever, whatever it takes to, to quote Mario Draghi. Um, but this is just a nightmare. So does hyperinflation happen? Ideally, it doesn't. But we know what central bankers ought to be doing. I think I think we probably agree between the three of us on the call today that rates have to start to normalize and hopefully they have to start to normalize quite quickly. And if they don't, then kind of all bets are off. Fantastic. Well, that's absolutely brilliant. Just to say a few shout outs to at GardenWallFP on Twitter. Thank you for your uh, your comments and also for recommending Daniel DiMartino Booth, who would be great to have on the show. Uh, obviously, we've just heard from Joe Harris, but thank you for your, your comments on Twitter. And the floating voter, uh, thank you for your, your comments. Hope you enjoyed your flights and you're back safely. Uh, on YouTube, Sunny Days 64, Force Majeure and Andrew Kidd. Thank you very much for your comments. They are very much appreciated. And to new subscribers, Tom, Jabir and Joseph on YouTube. So just leaves me to say thank you to Tim and for everybody listening. And we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Paul, Tim, this is Graham Jones here in a very wet Cleveland on a Saturday afternoon. Um, just trying to cheer myself up after the cuffing in when we see from South Africa. So naturally, I listen to your uh, special Brexit cast podcast full of black humour, loads of informative uh, stuff. Uh, and uh, I'd just like to say more, please. That was possibly one of the best podcasts that uh, you've done and they're all good. So many thanks and keep it up. Cheers. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.